to the end of the year and the beginning of another one, people are starting to think about, I need to eat healthier. And I saw this snack back in the green room. I just thought I'd share it with you. It's really cool. It's a, it's a little tiny bag of Doritos. It says it's only 100 calories, and it calls them mini bites. But it's just the little crumbs from the bottom of a Doritos bag. <laughs> so... As long as we have that kind of American ingenuity, I think we're always going to be okay. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. So we're continuing our study through the Gospel of Mark. You know, history started with two people in a garden. God gave them some really simple instructions and they messed up. And their messing up started a progression of sin that's existed ever since in this world. And it's what makes the world so bad. And even at, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, God promised Adam and Eve that at some point he was going to defeat the forces of evil by sending from the woman's seed a, a son who would deliver us from this mess that the world is in. And so all through the Old Testament, there was a sense of wondering, how long is it going to be before God makes things right? How long is it going to be before he turns things around and fixes them? Well, Christmas was the first indication that God was responding, that he was doing that which would deliver us. But, and, and, and that was a welcomed event for sure. But as you know, the people rejected the solution. And so as Jesus, though, died for our sins, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, we're still waiting for God to fix everything. Everything that needed to happen happened except for the people's response. And so as much as Old Testament saints were wondering, how long is it going to be? The disciples were wondering, Jesus, how long is it going to be? And that's what he asks here in Mark 13. The disciples ask Jesus. And beyond that, we still are wondering, okay, how long? See, God has a, a strange timetable where one day is the same to him as a thousand years. Kind of like your wife, you know? It's just, <laughs> I'll be there in just a minute. And not just to pick on the women. And I've been saying I was going to get my garage cleaned any day now for quite a while. And, you know, but God is the epitome of somebody who isn't, doesn't seem to be in a rush. Jesus, as he was ascending into heaven, he said, I'll be right back. And it's been almost 2,000 years that we've been waiting for him. And so we can relate to the question that the disciples ask him here in Mark 13, and we can learn from his response. Notice in the beginning of the chapter, they were looking at the temple, this incredible building that was there at kind of the high point of the city of Jerusalem. And somebody, one of the disciples said in verse 1, teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. They go, man, look at this amazing building. And Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
So Jesus is letting them know, you know, sure, the building's impressive, but there are some rough times ahead. And I think they understood from that that he was talking about his ultimate fulfillment. He had already been, as you know, as we're reading through the Gospel of Mark, he's been telling them that he's going to go and suffer and die and then rise from the dead. And, but they knew he's the Messiah. He's still going to have to, to establish his kingdom on the earth and make things right. And they were still wondering, but okay, toppling over the temple and all that stuff, when? When are you going to fix things? When are things going to get straightened out? When is this world going to be really what it was designed to be? And so in verse 3, it says, He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. The Mount of Olives is just a little hill that's right outside across the, the little valley from the mountain that the temple is on. And as they were sitting there opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So they wanted to know the answer to a question that many of us would love to know. Okay, I know you say you're going to fix it, but when? When is all this going to take place? And Jesus taught them one of the longest messages that he taught the disciples. And we call it the Olivet Discourse because he was preaching it there on the Mount of Olives. Two Sundays ago, we were having church right there on the Mount of Olives, and I was talking about this as we looked over the city of Jerusalem. But they were there in that way, and they go, how long? And he gave this message. The message is also presented um, in a little longer form over in Matthew chapter 24 as well. But he began to talk to them, and he said, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. So he says, first of all, I got to tell you, there are going to be phonies. There are going to be people who say they're me, who come along. Don't believe them. Four, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines and troubles. These are just the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of birth pangs. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray brother to death. A father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. So far, he hasn't answered what they were asking about when. But what he's telling them is, you guys are going to face some really difficult times. Times of war, times of persecution, times when you'll be in trouble just because you believe in me. At that time, the Holy Spirit will be with you. He'll show you what to say. He'll lead and guide you, but it's going to hurt. 
It's going to be ugly. Things are going to get a lot worse on this planet before they ever get better, including natural disasters and things like that, wars and rumors of wars. Now, all of this that he is explaining to them is basically what history has been from now to then. Times of persecution, times of difficulty, times of just realizing, boy, he isn't back yet. Now, there are some people who would believe that Jesus really fulfilled all of his obligations back in 70 AD, that what he was prophesying here all happened, including the next section on the tribulation, in 70 AD when Titus came in and and leveled the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. But in reality, it's hard for me to believe that actually now Jesus has come back and everything's fine. What he's describing here to them looks more like what we are experiencing as a world. Oh, maybe not us individually. You know, we start whining if our investments go down, but there are many places in the world where there's horrible persecution that's happening to people just because they believe in Jesus. And that's always, it's been the case ever since he left. And so Jesus kind of lays this out for them, but then he shifts gears and it becomes obvious that he's talking about a period of time that's much more severe than even all of that. And he begins now to refer, after verse 14, he begins to refer to, in the third person, to the people who will experience this time. And he's talking about a period of time that the scriptures call the great tribulation, the greatest time of judgment to ever come to this earth. And he said, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation Daniel prophesied as being a significant event when a man of lawlessness, a man of sin, would go into the Holy of Holies in the center of the temple, that place where the glory of God dwelt, that place where only the high priest could go only once a year on Yom Kippur, and would go in and defile the place grossly. Now, there are people who believe that Daniel's prophecy of that was fulfilled when Antiochus Epiphanes did basically that 150 years or so before Jesus came. That Antiochus went in, sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies, defiled the temple, which then resulted to a great degree in the Maccabean revolt where the Maccabees came and, and uh, basically harassed the, the, the uh, enemy and caused their lives to be really difficult and and a lot of heroes were made in the process. The problem is Jesus is talking about the abomination of desolation as a time that's yet future. And so even though Antiochus Epiphanes was sort of a near fulfillment of what Daniel was prophesying, he was also obviously referring to something that was yet to happen because here Jesus in 32 AD is still talking about it as if it's future. And then he begins to talk about this time called the Great Tribulation. And he says, If you're in Judea, flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, 
But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Now Jesus is referring to a period of time that we call the tribulation period or the great tribulation. Now, as soon as you start talking about this, Christians begin to divide. And it isn't always easy to ascertain all the details and to clarify all of them as to exactly how you take the passages in Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation and here in the Gospels and that in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians and all the different passages that refer to what we call the last days, it can get kind of complicated. But don't miss the point that Jesus is trying to make He's not trying to even solve all of those controversies. He's certainly not telling us exactly in a detailed way what's going to happen. But he's told the disciples, you are going to go through some awful times. But after that, there's going to be a time when it gets even worse. There's going to be that period of time that results and the abomination of desolation is there. Therefore, it has to be a time when there's a temple. It's also a time when there will be rulers in the world who want to destroy everything that there is about God. And this is a time that I believe is yet future. Um, he's saying it's a time when it's worse than anything that came before it and worse that, than anything that comes after it. So that certainly wouldn't you know, satisfy the, or describe the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There are some people called preterists who believe that all this stuff has been already passed, but certainly there are some people going through things today that are, that are worse than anything anybody had gone through before. This time has to even exceed that. And then that time is culminated, <coughs> as in verse 24, he says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. So now you see, Jesus is at least describing the event when he returns. Now, again, Christians divide, churches fight over exactly when does this happen and what's he talking about. And if you're already confused and you're already going, what is this tribulation and coming clouds and elect and torture and blah, 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 and I'm like, hey, wait, I'm new here. It's just my mom dragged me here because Christmas is this week and <laughs> you're dumping all this stuff on me. I expected kind of a Jingle Bells kind of message. Well, <laughs> you know... Come on, you saw the kids sing. What do you want? No, but, but don't worry. 
Because none of this is the point. All of this is just a precursor to what is going to be the point of the message. Because Jesus didn't solve or answer the questions that they had. He lays out a bunch of things. And, you know, I don't think it bothers him that much that we can't figure out or we can't seem to agree on when Jesus returns. Now, they were asking it. He didn't really answer it. People today have different opinions. Again, there are some people who believe that all of this has already happened. And in 70 AD, Jesus returned in a spiritual way. Or there are Jehovah's Witnesses who think he returned a little over 100 years ago, and you just didn't notice. And he's here now. And, you know, so if that's what he's talking about, then I can't see that. But, but that's okay if somebody wants to believe that. But now there are people who look at this thing of him coming in the clouds, and now there's still a little bit of a confusion because there are references in the scripture to Jesus coming in the clouds and lifting up those who believe in him in something that we call the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about it. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the event that we call the rapture. Now, This is an event that happens after the tribulation when Jesus comes in the clouds. The angels are somehow involved in gathering his elect. So there are some people who look at this passage and say, obviously he's talking about the rapture. And so clearly the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation period, three and a half years after the abomination of desolation. And, you know, that's a legitimate position that Christians who love God can, you know, hold to. Personally, I believe that the rapture is a separate event that comes at the beginning of the tribulation period. And I believe these are two different events because for several reasons. For one thing, in the rapture, we meet him in the clouds. We, we are caught up and meet him in the air. Here, in, the, in his second coming, when we compare, like in Zechariah, when we look at other places where he talks about it, he lands on the earth. He touches his feet down on top of the Mount of Olives and the mountain splits and all kinds of crazy things happen and judgment is now the result. None of that sounds like what Paul was describing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as he talks about the rapture. So for me, these are I see these as two different events. However, that's still not the point of the passage. So I don't want to argue, if you're mid-trib, post-trib, non-trib, whatever, I, I don't want to argue with you after it because that's still not what Jesus is teaching here. It's not his point. But that's how you can kind of see these events and you can decide what you think it's talking about. But Jesus continues in his teaching, and so let's move on. And he says, now learn this parable, verse 28, from the fig tree. The fig tree was used often as a symbol of the nation of Israel. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. 
this Jesus is saying, I'm not going to tell you, and he goes on and we'll see this. I'm not going to tell you when this is going to happen. I'm not going to really answer your question. But he said, use common sense. When you look at a fig tree and it begins to, to change, and before the figs actually pop out, you are able to see what's happening and, and put two and two together and you have an idea of when the figs are coming. And so probably as a reference to what God would do among the nation of Israel, the fig tree, he's saying, you're going to see some things happen that let you know you're getting in the neighborhood, you're getting close. Now, there are people who have taken this passage and kind of gone too far with it and, and, and said, okay, the fig tree is blossoming. That has to be 1948 when Israel is declared a nation. And therefore, if you count from 1948, figure a generation's 40 years, that takes you to 1988. Jesus ought to come by then. And there were books that were written, 88 reasons why Jesus will come in 1988 or before. And then others who said, it's not 88, because we're pre-trib, so take seven years away. It's 1981 Jesus is going to come. Now, in both cases, we're wrong. It didn't happen that way. But again, if, if we would just continue and read the chapter, we would see Jesus is saying, no one knows the day or the hour. So what's this fig tree thing? He's saying, you're going to see things happening that let you know at least it's getting ripe. At least things are happening. And for me, as I see what God has done in, in just you know, the last 50 years or more, there in Israel, bringing Israel back and making them a nation, I don't know if it's a fulfillment. The fig tree isn't necessarily ripe yet. I don't know when the clock starts. But I see God working in a, an amazing way. I also see that we've endured two millennia of wars and famine and, and all kinds of problems, and it does seem like the tree's getting ripe. And when I look at the world, it's hard to imagine that things could get a whole lot worse. And so certainly as I would look at a tree and say, we ought to be seeing fruit pretty soon, it is legitimate for me to look at this world and go, man, something's got to snap here. Something's got to happen. We are ripe for the return of Jesus Christ, and I really believe that. But let's read on, because here's the point of his message. This is where he gets to his conclusion. Verse 32, however, despite all that, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. I don't even know myself, nor the Son, but only the Father. So take heed, watch, and pray. For you do not know when the time is. It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. So here's the point that he's saying. You're wondering, when are you going to do this? When are you going to come back and fix everything? When are you going to judge sin? When are you going to deliver the righteous? When are you going to establish a, a new earth and a new heaven? When? 
That's what they were asking, and we wonder that too. But basically what he says is, no, it's, it's going to be rough. However, be ready. Watch. Because you don't know when it's going to happen. At that time, Jesus said, I don't even know when it's going to happen. But be ready. Well, how do you make yourself ready? Well, here he's talking about a guy who is heading off to another country, and so he leaves certain servants with responsibilities and things that they are to accomplish. And he goes, if you don't know when he's coming back, you better do what he told you to do so you'll be ready when he returns. Now, turn over to Matthew chapter 24 because this is a little bit longer version of the story and of the Olivet Discourse. And in, in chapter 24, after saying that no one knows the day or the hour and talking about a, a thief coming and if you're not watching, the guy's going to break in, look at verse 45. He says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he says, if your boss is gone, you better keep working because you don't know when he's coming back and you're going to pay the price. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but sometimes the first time you goof off, bosses have a way of just showing up at that time. I, I remember when I worked at Calvary Costa Mesa, Pastor Chuck, sometimes you wouldn't see him for days, but as soon as you started messing around, he would show up. I, Pastor Romain once told the story that he was an assistant pastor there, and he said he had worked all day long, just hadn't even sat down for a second, and Romain didn't even have an office to goof around in, so he was just working really hard, and at the end of the day, there's like 15 minutes before closing time, and so Romain said he sat down on the sofa in the office, put his feet up, tipped his head back, closed his eyes, and just breathed a sigh of relief, and then he heard the door open, and he said, I didn't even open my eyes. I said, hi, pastor. <laughs> That's just the way it was. I remember one time I had gone months without a day off at all. I was there working like crazy long hours, ridiculous hours. I never take vacations or anything. But one day somebody asked me to go golfing and on a Friday. And I go, yeah, sure, you know, sounds good. So I'm out golfing, and that's when Pastor Chuck came by the office and was looking for me. And so one of the receptionists who... I wasn't sure who it was until she confessed to me after first service um, was Sharon Snyder. But <laughs> instead of telling Chuck, Dave's out, she goes, he's out golfing. And so Chuck called me later that night at home, and he goes, must be nice. I go, what? He said, they didn't even call me and tell me he was looking for me. It was pre-cell phone days anyway. But he said, must be nice that you're... You know, you don't have anything to do on a Friday, and so you can just go out and go golfing. 
And I'm like, I could have defended myself. I could have gone, who do you, I work more hours than you do. I work, you know, could have, but it was just like, whatever, I'll just have to eat it. That's, that's the way it works. And so here, Jesus is talking about that tendency, and he's going, you don't want to get caught goofing off. Your master has given you a job to do, and he said, occupy until I come, do business until I come. And you just want to do what he's called you to do. You want to stick with it because you don't know when he's going to be here. And, and Jesus says, an evil servant is a guy who decides, oh, I don't think he's coming. He hasn't come yet. He's probably not coming for a long time. And therefore, I can take advantage of the situation and be selfish. Now, as you read on in Matthew 25, again, the same context, you see the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Five of them, they were all waiting for the bridegroom to come, and they didn't know when he was going to come. But if you were there when he came, you'd get invited to the wedding. If you weren't there, you wouldn't get invited. And so you were to process with him, holding up these lanterns. And five of the women had oil in their lamps. Five of them didn't. And so then when he showed up, the five weren't ready, and so they ran off to, to get some oil in their lamps, and they missed out on the wedding. And the, the point of it is, be ready. Again, the same thing. Then he tells the parable of the talents. You're probably familiar with that, where different servants were given different amounts of responsibility and told to invest until the master came back. And those who invested were rewarded. The one guy who just took his and buried it in the ground and was too conservative and didn't take chances, he was judged as being evil because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do while the master was gone. Again, all of this is to the point that the Lord was making with the Olivet Discourse. And that is, <coughs> I'm going away. And you want to know how long I'm going to be gone and I'm not going to tell you. Because if I told you how long it was going to be, you'd probably just goof around. So I'm not going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you this. Be ready. Be alert. Be awake. Be in prayer. Be doing what I've called you to do. And if you do that, you'll be blessed. If you do that, when I come back, you'll be glad to see me. But you're going to be bummed if I return and you're not doing what I gave you to do. Now, what does this have to do with us? I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I know he could come back at any time. But not only that, I know he's already come back for a whole lot of people, for millions of people who were his children who have now died and gone on to face him. And I would love it if the rapture would come during this service. That would be great. And it could happen. I want to be ready. I don't want to have regrets. But at the same time, you know what? It may be that the rapture is not going to come for a 1,000 years. One day is with the Lord is a 1,000 years. But I'll tell you this. If the rapture doesn't come within the next 1,000 years, my rapture is coming, and I know it. The day is going to come when I meet my maker. The day is going to come when I face him. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. I'm looking forward to seeing him. I'm not hoping that I live to be, you know, 120. 
I, no, I, I want to be with him as soon as I'm finished with what he has for me to do on this earth. And that could be today or tomorrow. It could be 50 years from now. I don't know. But I want to be ready to face him. I want to know that what I did with what he gave me was exactly what he called me to do. And that is way more important than knowing when it is. You could go to some palm reader and they'll look at your lifeline and they'll tell you how long you're going to live, supposedly. You know, they're phony, it's not real. But I'm curious, why would you even want to know how long you're going to live? If you're going to die tomorrow, you might want to know. But how would that change what you do today? Chances are, if you knew that there's a good chance you were going to die tomorrow, a lot would change. You might not just spend the day doing nothing. There might be some phone calls you'd need to make. There might be things you need to say to people you love that you haven't. There might be people you know that you'd want to make sure that you told them about Jesus because your days are numbered. Finding out that you have a fatal disease can be a, a really life-transforming and a blessed thing to have happen to you. And I've seen people who knew they were going to die pretty soon, and often it did incredible things in their lives because they, start, they just took on a different set of priorities. They lived different. What Jesus is saying here is always live your life that way. You don't know how much time you have. We are all on borrowed time. So how about doing what you've been called to do today? Don't wait till New Year's Eve to make resolutions to change things. There may be some of us that don't make it to 2009. So don't just fritter away the time that you have Life is a gift. Every moment of life is an opportunity. We have callings from God to do what he wants us to do. And Jesus would say, don't ask me how long. That's not good for you. Live your life like today could be the day. Live your life like I could come for you at any time. Because he will come for all of us. It may be in a rapture. I hope we see that. That would be to me, a pretty cool way to go. But I don't care how I get there. If I go in a fiery car crash or something, it doesn't matter. I see Jesus. No scars, no pain. It won't hurt long. <laughs> you know, and, and it, that's what he's telling us. Watch and pray. Have priorities straight. That's what, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, after Paul talks about death and resurrection and the resurrection body, and then he talks about the rapture of the church, and after all of that, his conclusion is this, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You guys, today you have, I don't know what else you have, but today is a gift from God. What are you going to do with it? Now, that's not, okay, I need to change the world today because I could die tomorrow. No, you do what God told you to do today. That might mean playing with your grandkids. It might mean taking a nap or watching a football game. But understand, this day is a gift 
from God. And you don't know how many days you have. You can't possibly know. Only God knows. So are you going to live your life making the most of every opportunity, doing what he's called you to do, or are you just waiting for, you know, oh, I have plenty of days. Lives are squandered one moment at a time. Lives and opportunities are wasted when we think that, oh, you know, the master delays is coming. It's no rush. It's no hurry. No, it's not a rush or a hurry, but it's a gift that God has given us. The opportunity to decide what we're going to do with what he has given us. The challenge to follow him, to serve him, to walk with him. That's a gift. And when you say, when is all this going to be straightened out? He says, I'm not going to tell you. All I'm going to tell you to do is watch. Be ready. Use the moments that you have. Don't waste and squander your opportunities. There might be some people here today who have never even given their lives to Jesus Christ. You, again, you got dragged here because Christmas is coming. Your life is a gift, whether you know it or not. And you have a calling from God. He has things that he wants to do in you and through you and for you. And I don't know why you'd want to put that off. Maybe you've been thinking, one of these days I'll get spiritual. And every time I watch Oprah, I kind of feel like, yeah, there's something spooky missing in my life. Well... <laughs> I'll tell you what it is. It's a relationship with the one who made you. And today, you could discover that and start that. You, you could get right with him today. After the service, there'll be people up here in the front who would love to pray with you and introduce you to a whole new life, a whole new start. And it's free. It's not going to cost anything. It's just deciding to give your moments left to him. Now, it's true you don't have to do it today. I know you got stuff to do, and maybe the, uh, your company Christmas party's coming up this week, and you think you'll enjoy getting drunk a lot more, you know, not having God hounding you. So, yeah, you could go ahead and party this week, and, and next Sunday you could give your life to Jesus. We'll still be here, maybe, hopefully. And I'm sure you'll make it the next week. Could be. What if you don't? What if something goes wrong? What if something happens and you don't have another seven days? Boy, you'll regret it for eternity that you missed the opportunity to get right with God. Jesus is speaking to you right now, and he's saying, get right with me now. Don't put this off. Because every moment of your life is a gift. I know I gave it to you. But what you do with it, that's your choice. Do you want to squander it? Or do you want to get yourself ready for what comes after this life? Because I assure you, the end of this life is not the end. Our, our intuition will even tell us it has to be a place of judgment. There has to be a place where sin is dealt with once and for all. Heaven wouldn't be heaven if everyone was there just as they are. But also, our, our heart tells us 
I am more than just something that's going to end when I die. There's something in me that's more than just chemicals and biology. And heaven is real. And God has designed you for it. He wants you there. He doesn't want to send you to hell. People say, oh, I can't believe in a God who would send you to hell. How about a God who would send his son to die so you don't have to go there? Is it still his fault if you want to go there? If you choose to go there? Uh, Man, I don't know how much time we have left. I don't know how much time we have left on this planet. I don't know how much time we have left before we blow ourselves up. But for each of us personally, maybe you're going to live a long time. But maybe today is my last chance to tell you to get right with God. So I want to take that opportunity, and I'm telling you, there's a God who loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And if you ask him, he'll save you. He'll give you a a fresh start. All of a sudden, the days and weeks and months of wasting your life will be over. And you'll have a calling, a job, something that God wants you to do. And you can use your life in a meaningful way. He's asking you to do that. For the rest of us who have already accepted Jesus Christ and we know him, what are we doing? Are we ready? Are we watching? Are we living today like it might be the last day? It's the only way to live. It's the only way to really enjoy life. It's the only way to really avoid messing it up is to realize how precious it is. And I hope we all understand that. That's God's message to us. Don't go away today and with an idea of, oh good, I have some great arguments to argue a pre-tribulation rapture. Boy, I hope I get my hands on some preterist so I can straighten them out. No. This is much more important than theology. This is about life. And God's telling you, watch and pray. Be ready. Get the most. Invest the most that you can into the most precious gift that you have, the gift of time. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Thank you for reminding us and letting us know that just because we care about when doesn't mean that's what you think is the most important thing that we know. We're sorry for all the times we've been caught up in wondering when. And you were just telling us, just be ready. Just live your life like it could end, like it's temporary. And there are permanent things worth living for. So God, please help us to have your divine perspective as Jesus laid out for us in this Olivet Discourse. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Again, if you'd like prayer for any reason...